Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text today is from the epistle reading. James, in the third chapter, writes, We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfected man, able also to bridle his whole body. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue, that small member, is a fire. So far, our text, dear friends, in our Lord Jesus Christ, Last week, we looked on as Christ in the life of a deaf and a mute man enabled the tongue. Well, this week, our Lord's Apostle James exhorts us to disable it, or rather to to bridle it at least. But holding the tongue and biting it, guarding it, that's far far more easily said than it is done, and we all know that to be true. And I think illustrative of of our common tongue trouble is a rather drab and gray slate tombstone that stands on a windswept hill in an English country churchyard. The faint etched epitaph reads this way. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies our dear Mrs. Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. We'd all hope that that wouldn't be our lasting legacy etched on our burial stone. But we can, I think, sympathize. James is clear. Our problem is not being too tongue-tied in our conversations daily with one another. It's just the opposite. It's having unguarded and having loose lips. That brings to mind another saying. It's not one etched in stone anywhere I know, but it's one, I think, probably etched in stone on most of you who lived through the years of the Second World War. The saying is this, loose lips sink ships. It was a slogan created by the U.S. Office of War Information to to guard soldiers riding home, even guard Americans in general, from inadvertently making public any critical strategic information that could fall into the wrong hands. Loose lips sink ships. Well, unguarded tongues do far more damage than that, don't they? James says we all slip and stumble in many ways, but it is the tongue that leads the way. The man who's complete, who has complete mastery over his tongue, he's, James says, he's bridled his whole body. The one who says always what he should say in any given context and situation, and at the same time the one who holds his tongue perfectly, always not saying what shouldn't be said in, in particular situations, well, that man, he's bridled the whole body. Just like the bit and bridled mouth of the horse that, that steers the whole stallion, or as James said, that little rudder that, that guides the massive ship, the man who's mastered that little member, his tongue, he's mastered all members. But no such man exists. And Scripture says it. James said it today in our epistle reading. No human being can tame the tongue. And the evidence of that fact speckles the wake of our life's conversations. When the things that would hurt and belittle and tear down and deceive and flatter for gain and be spoken out of turn and that that would dishonor, when these things come rushing up from the heart from which they're born... When they come rushing up from the heart, we're all guilty of leaving the door open, of not stopping them at the mouth, that final and last point of return before they're out there and you can't get them back again. One named Wentworth Dillon 
said in stating the obvious, he said, words once spoken can never be recalled. And we know that one from our own life's experiences. How often have you wanted to reel back in what your tongue just blurted out or what you just let slip or what you just said, spoke in order to hurt someone with intention? How often? And oh, the infernos that our little tongues spark. Especially, especially at this time of year, we Californians are used to hearing of the, of the forest and the grass fires that a little unguarded spark has set off. In the news coverage we see on television, it's familiar that shows us just what it looks like after a careless camper or, or even an arson, perhaps, an arsonist, lights a spark in primed conditions. We know what it looks like. Lives embodied by, those, by the charred and smoke-damaged debris lying there in ruin. Family pictures and special mementos once, once prominently on the mantle. Above the fireplace now in a mound of rubble and ruin. Where husbands and wives, where, where sons and daughters, brothers and sisters used to spend time together. Burned out homes. They're an awful lot like the burned out lives and the great damage done by our little tongues to irreplaceable moments and damage done to, to special memories and to reputations and to relationships. There is a baptismal water that douses the guilt for those fires that we've set ablaze with our tongues. You're washed in it. You're washed in the promise that God who alone judges you're washed in the promise that God won't hold you accountable for the careless fires, even the arsonistic ones that you've set by your tongue. He pardons you. You have his word. But what's true for worldly fires, it's true also for the spiritual ones we set as well. Even though the governor may grant you pardon, still there will be earthly consequences to burned out homes and hurt people. Eternal consequences pardoned, but there will be pieces to pick up. And sometimes, repentant, regretful, though we may be, sometimes the damage from loose lips is near irreparable, beyond repair. You've probably heard the story of a small-town woman who rumored a fascinating little tidbit she learned about her neighbor to her circle of friends, ladies that would often gather mid-morning for coffee. Well, soon the rumor, untrue, spread like wildfire all throughout this small town. And her neighbor's meat market, because of the reputation it caused for him, her, her neighbor's meat market began to suffer losses, losing business because of it. And so feeling guilty about being the initial spark of this now widespread rumor, the woman decided to go to her pastor and, and confess that she indeed was the fire starter, and she said she wanted to do anything and everything that she could to make things right again and fix them. Well, the pastor absolved her of her sin. And then he said to her, he said, I want you, to, though, to follow me. And they went up together. The woman following the pastor climbed all the steps to the top of the church's bell tower and emerged from the door out there on the bell tower overlooking all the small town and standing there above the town in the wind that often will blow at that height, Standing there above the town in the wind, the pastor tore open a paper bag he had, 
full of feathers. And of course the feathers caught on the wind and began to blow this direction and that direction every which way. And the two of them stood there and watched these feathers go all throughout the town. And then the pastor said to her, he turned and said, Your sin's forgiven, but if you want to make it for your neighbor as if the words had never left your mouth, then go and collect every last feather and put it back into the bag. It's impossible. Irreparable. The tongue, says James, is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, sometimes your life, but many times the entire course of someone else's life. Unruly evil, James says, full of poison. For what is it? What is it that vows to love and to honor, have and hold, till death us do part, and then after vowing such a thing, says things that don't match that at all? What is it that dishonors fathers and mothers, grandparents too, on this grandparents' day? What member of the body dishonors, dishonors them more than any other member of the body? It's the tongue. What was it that first led Adam and Eve to indulge in the deadly forbidden? It was a forked and a serpentine tongue. And as a result, what was it in Adam and Eve? What is it still to this day that blames others for what we've unleashed, that tries to excuse away the damage that it itself has done? The tongue. What is it? In Christians, as much as in anyone else, what is it that will spring fresh blessing at one time on one, and yet from the very same source at another time will issue forth saltine curses or complaints about another? These things, brothers, sisters, these things ought not be so. But they are. They ought not, but they are. Why? Because we baptized saints are still yet in this world fully sinners, just forgiven. But sinners nonetheless who carelessly, even at times intentionally, say things we shouldn't. And, and we don't say things that we should, and it's wrong. It's wrong. What's the remedy then for the tragedy of our tongues? It's not more talking on our part. In fact, it's not even on our part. The remedy for the tragedy of our tongues is Christ's tongue. And so note it well. And note firstly about it, not what it says, note firstly what it doesn't say. For as a lamb before its shearer is silent, Isaiah says, so he, with face set like flint, determined to go to our cross for us, so he opened not his mouth. He was accused wrongly, he was spit upon, cursed, blasphemed, denied, disowned. He still is. He still is in our careless and in our frightened and proud moments. He still is. And yet Jesus Christ, the God-anointed and God-enfleshed receptacle of all of our sin, he opened not his mouth silently. Uncomplaining forth he went. Baptized into our sin he went to offer himself for all the things that you said but shouldn't have, all the things that that you didn't say, but you should have. 
Not only for the sins, though, of our lips, but also the full atoning sacrifice for the sins of all of our life. He went. And you know, in the intense flames on that cross of God's wrath against sin, not his own, we'd expect any man to slip a remark to us about about how much we'd owe him for what he did for us, what he's doing for us. We'd expect that from any man, and yet what does he say? What do we hear from his tongue? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What do we hear from him? What does he say to us about what we yet owe him? He says, no, it is finished. It's done. I've completed it. And having earned an exhaustible pardon, enough for all men of all time, what do we hear? Our resurrected Lord charge his apostles and pastors to do. For all who trust in him, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. It's no wonder then. That in our Old Testament reading today, you heard Isaiah write of it. He was writing, he was speaking messianically, writing messianically, speaking for the Messiah. When he wrote, the Lord God has given me the Messiah, the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with, with a word. Him who is weary. And doesn't he? Doesn't he? For recall all the things your tongue has slipped or blurted or slandered or, 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 or when it's remained wrongly silent. Think of them all. Think of the ones that you, the things that you've said or that you didn't that bother you the most. And then read his lips. You're forgiven of them. You're forgiven of them all. You see, his tongue never tires of speaking you forgiven. In fact, Jesus has instituted a supper so that you can taste just how forgiven you are. As he himself, under bread and wine, he touches your tongue. Thinking on Isaiah and touching the tongue, touching the lips, how can we help but think of what is written by Isaiah in the sixth chapter of his book? Remember, he writes that when in the year that King Uzziah died, he found himself... There in the very throne room presence of Almighty God, with angels and with archangels, with all the company of heaven, the song being sung, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of Sabaoth. Sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? And what was his remark, Isaiah's remark, finding himself amid all of this? He says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips who lives amid a people of unclean lips. And then... A messenger from God, an angel, flew to him with a live coal from the heavenly altar in tongs, not in his hands, for this coal was never meant to touch angels, only men. With a live coal, he flew to him, and the angel touched the coal to Isaiah's mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, because your sin has been atoned for. Friends, when you hear at this altar amid angels and archangels, take and eat, and when you take and drink, I tell you it's more than heaven's coal that touches and purges your lips. It's heaven's king. And it's heaven's Lord, Jesus Christ. In flesh and blood, he touches your tongue so that your iniquity is taken away because your sin has been atoned for. 
taste of him and of his triumph. For as he said, it's yours. And so, enabled by his work and his words, then employ that little member of yours that he's redeemed, your tongue. Employ it to speak forgiveness, knowing that he's forgiven us. Employ it to speak kindness, knowing how kind in Christ God has been to us. Employ it to mend fences that need mending. Employ it to speak only, Paul says, what's good for building up as fits the occasion that it may impart grace to the hearers. And lastly, regarding the damage done by the fires our tongues have started, remember this, that from every lot of scorched earth, new life will eventually sprout. For behold, his tongue declares, I make all things new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.